peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We've made it to our 20th book in The Naked Truth, readings the book of Second Chronicles, and we're already up to chapter 3. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, which the Lord had, and where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of our man, the Jebusite. So uh, the people we're talking about, Solomon, that's and David, that's King David and his son Solomon. David is the same David and Goliath David. Solomon's the wisest, richest man in history, according to the Bible, Solomon. Lord here, um, let's see, so far has been being translated from the name to English, Lord, from, and once again, from the word Jehovah or name Yehovah, Jehovah, whichever you prefer. That's who we're talking about here. Um, and the construction of the temple. And it says that the uh, threshing floor, floor of Ornan, that's where um, there was a massacre. But according to the narrative, the Lord was sending a death angel through town, killing people uh, because of something David did. And um, the massacre only ended when David made an offering, a burn offering, there on the threshing floor of Ornan. That's where you basically process grains. And then that caused an end to the massacre and seemed to satiate the Lord to stop killing people, if you're going to believe the narrative. Um, so that's where now the temple is being set up at. Verse 2, being built at. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. So giving you a timeline of how long Solomon was in power before he began building the temple. Verse 3, this is the foundation which Solomon laid building the house of God. The length was 60 cubits by cubits according to the former measure and the width 20 cubits. So when it says cubits, it's basically talking about a general measurement, not an exact one. Like you may have a a foot 12 inches in modern times a cubit isn't like that a cubit is um from what i understand it's the length of a man specifically the a man's arm forearm from the elbow to the tip of his middle finger and of course everybody's arms are different and that length that distance that uh measurement is different so it's a general measurement seems to me about uh, a foot and a half to two feet something like that um but uh, so you can do the math and get an idea of the dimensions of uh, the building that's happening. Um, verse four, and the vestibule that was in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long across the width of the house and the height was 120. He overlaid inside with pure gold. So imagine that, it's like a church being built, uh, grand and fabulous with uh, gilding gold all even on the walls. Uh, verse 5, the larger room he paint paneled with cypress which he overlaid with fine gold and carved palm trees and chain work on it. So more gold plated things all over the temple uh, and carvings. Verse 6, and he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty and the gold was gold from Parvain. So um uh, the temple is being uh, designed and decorated with all sorts of precious metals and jewels. Verse 7, he also overlaid the house, the beams and, door, and doorposts, its walls, 
and doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. So he's gold plating everything, uh, you know, not everything, but lots of different things um, in the temple. And um, even making the carvings of the angels, that's what cherubim are generally due to be, on the walls. Verse 8, and he made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and its width 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. So uh, the most holy place, also called, I think, the holy of holies, where only the uh, high priest could enter or approach God, at least that's what it was used for, and only at certain times of the year. That's what it was. It makes me think of, like in um, um, uh, animation, a cube. Uh, the, you know, the cube, like from the, the, the was it Superman? Um, that sort of cube. But it also makes me think of that um, the cube that the people in uh, Islam uh, worship, or at least uh, revere in Mecca. It's like a giant cube that the people are, uh, that's being constructed here also. Um, verse 9, the weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area, area with gold. So even the nails are being made of gold. Because remember, we read previously in the last couple of chapters of this Second Chronicles that Solomon was extremely wealthy. His kingdom was, and it, he was so wealthy that gold was as common as stones, is what the narrative says. Verse 10, in the most holy place, he made two cherubim, fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. So now we have two more cherubim, angels. Um, uh, and they're also gold plated verse 11 the wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits in overall length one wing of the one cherub was five cubits touching the wall of the room the other wing was five cubits touching the wing of the other cherub so now you're getting a design description of what the um what the uh worship area was like and we've gone over this before. It's basically meant to be, it sounds like, a replica of the same Ark of the Covenant, um, which is a replica of what's believed to be or was believed to be the um, appearance of the throne room of God, basically. God seated on a throne, the mercy seat, as it's called, and protected by, flanked by angels or cherub, cherubim, if you prefer, uh, on either side with their wings spread out uh, to cover, conceal the uh, appearance, conceal the identity, conceal the view of the one sitting on that mercy seat, presumably God. Um, and they're also there as protectors. Now, what they're protecting from, I'm not sure. It's not real clear. Why would God need people to protect God since God is almighty and we've seen and we, we're going to believe the narrative. Uh, God will rain fire and brimstone down on some people. God will suddenly zap some people. And so God will suddenly open up the earth and swallow up some people. Yet those same people who believe that that's God still believe that God would also have you go out and fight wars for God. Why would God need you to do that? If God was ticked off at any person, any group of people, any nation of people, why didn't God just wipe them out? rain that fire and brimstone on them so that the whole world will know oh those people were in the wrong they were 
up to the wrong thing. Don't do what they did. That's not how it happens. So then either that wasn't God who did that, which is, you know, most likely, if you're going to believe what the gospels say, that no one's heard, that they had not heard God's voice at any any time or seen God's form. Or if you're going to believe that no one has seen the Father except he who is from God, being Jesus, who is, uh, he's seen the Father. That's according to Jesus himself. So, uh, as always, believe what you want, but it doesn't make, it's inconsistent. It's contradictory to believe that these people have had interactions with God, Almighty God's self, and yet Jesus tells us um, otherwise. As Christians, I believe we have to lean into what Jesus says and believe that. That's just me. Um, So now we have the description of angels, their wings spread out, touching each other, covering that mercy seat concealing it and um then there are other rings spread out touching the walls so that's just how large the cherub cherubim were um verse 13 the wings of these cherubim spanned 20 cubits overall they stood on their feet and they faced inward so you have the description and size of the cherubim so if you consider that one cubit is about uh two feet if one of angel's wings cherub's wings is 20 cubits that means its wing alone is 40 feet long so somewhere in that um area um so then that means it had to be at least 80 feet across for the each of the wings to be touching each other and then even more from the wings that are touching the walls um it gives you an idea of how large this uh, room is and how large this um I don't even know what you call it. Monument is. Um, Verse 14. And he made the veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen and wove cherubim into it. So uh, you have there a description of some of the um, non-metal ornamentation of the room and the temple. And let's not read over it. It talks about the different colors of... um, the lint, the curtains and things, the veils, that's what the curtain, the veil is, it's basically curtains concealing and blocking off different areas of the temple. And yet some preachers will tell you there's no such thing in, as colors in the Hebrew language, you know, and they will use that to switch the Ezekiel narrative of the UFO, as we call it in plain English, that he experienced in Ezekiel chapter one. They'll say, no, 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 it's not actually talking about amber. Uh, since there's no colors in uh, Hebrew, that's not true. We just read it right there. There's colors right there, blue, purple, and crimson. So it's, And they'll say that the amber is actually highly polished bronze. That doesn't mean it was actually highly pro- polished bronze. It means it's the same color as highly polished bronze, which would be amber, which is basically a light golden color. Um, but, you know, religionists, Preachers will do lots of things to intrigue people, get them to keep tuning in, and even more importantly, keep breaking them off, breaking them off donations. But we're just reading, trying to get an understanding, so let's keep reading. Verse 15, also he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital that was on the top of each of them was five cubits. So again, um, more design descriptions about now, the pillars that are there, uh, presumably to help hold up 
of the temple, the construction of the temple. Verse 16, he made wreaths of chain work as in the inner sanctuary and put them on top of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of chain work. Some more design details of what's on the pillars. And this particular scene reminds me of the other biblical allusion. I mentioned this before um, in pop culture. And in this instance, it reminds me of the Justice League game that used to be on, was it on the Xbox or the PlayStation? I think it was the Xbox. Um, there was a Justice League game that combined sort of some of the different um, comic book superheroes, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman, and they were all working together to uh, fight uh, an evil force. And in one of the scenes of that video game, there's a battle with a room that sounds a lot like this. Really tall pillars with um, design details that sound a lot like these and a giant room a lot like these. That this that reads uh, that the description reads a lot like how that looks in that video game. Um, so just give you an idea in case you are someone who's into gaming, um, and if you remember that scene, you could see it in that video game that it looks it sounds a whole lot like this that's been built, being constructed. Verse seventeen, and he set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left. He called the name on the one, the name of the one on the right hand, Jachen, and the name of the one on the left, Boaz. So uh, I don't know who Jachen is, but Boaz is basically his granddaddy. Boaz is the name of King David's father, at least according to narrative. So I guess he's naming uh, one of the pillars sort of as a, a nod to his granddaddy. Uh, the one Jachen. I'm not really sure who that is, but if it looks real quick and see, maybe translating what that means, um, the name Jachen, maybe that will help make it make more sense. Let's see. So there's a site that I've just recently discovered called BehindTheName.com. And it's really useful if you want to look up what different names mean. Biblical names um, is what it's mostly focused on. Um, and you can look and see what Jachen means. So looked it up. It means he establishes. So one pillar is being called he establishes in English. Um, and Boaz is the other. Let me see. Maybe it'll tell us what Boaz means also. And that side is very helpful. I think when you're if you're trying to follow other preachers who are telling you that the different names translate to different things and that it's significant in the overall narrative of things I find that suspect because it sounds too contrived like it's a human thing making it up it makes it sound fictional to me um, but that's just me especially when they overlook what certain names mean um, because they contradict what the narrative seems to be which would mean to me that it's just a name it's just somebody gave their child a name based on whatever it is they believe in, just like people do have done since before then and since then. Um, but so anyway, Jachen means he establishes. So let's see what Boaz means. And Boaz means swiftness. So he establishes swiftness or swiftness he establishes seems to be what the two pillars mean uh, collectively. Um, 
But most likely, rather than going by what they translate to, almost certainly he just named one Boaz, not because it, he likes the idea of swiftness, but because that's what his grandbaby's name was. But it could be, it could be otherwise. Um, again, just trying to make sense of it as we read it. Um, just reading it. Or at least I was. That was actually the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we will end this reading. As always, I appreciate you joining me for The Naked Truth. Hope it's a blessing to you. And hope you'll join me again. I love you. See you next time. Peace be with you.